In the early 1960s, the famous Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached a sermon series compiled into a book entitled Spiritual Depression. And in the first chapter, Lloyd-Jones unpacks one of the greatest reasons why people are uninterested in the Christian faith. And here it is, a lack of joy. In fact, he elaborates on what the world witnesses. He says, they're fond of contrasting Christians with people out in the world. People who seem to be so thrilled by the things they believe in. They shout at their football matches. They talk about the films they've seen. They're full of excitement and want everyone to know it. But Christians too often seem to be perpetually in the dumps. They too often are giving the appearance of unhappiness, a lack of freedom, and an absence of joy. And so this is one of the main reasons why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. Now do you catch his point here? Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the face of the planet. Why? Because they know the depths of their sin, the glory of Christ's work to save them, and the victory that is accomplished through Jesus' resurrection. Now I say all this because one of my goals, one of my desires for our church leading into Easter is that we would walk through our daily busy lives and in every turn and in every circumstance be overwhelmed with great joy for what God has done in Christ. He's raised Jesus from the dead, providing for us a living hope. And so because Jesus lives, we can have great, great joy. So don't miss this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ fuels our joy. So what we're going to see in 1 Peter chapter 1 is that God is worthy to be adored because he has caused his people to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, Christians throughout the course of human existence have every reason in the world to be filled with joy no matter what comes the way. No matter what may come. Why? Because they are promised a living hope and an eternal inheritance. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Page 1014, the Bible's below the chair in front of you. And while you're turning there, feel free to grab your outline. And you're going to notice that we have three points we'll be walking through this morning. Number one, resurrection power. Number two, resurrection joy. And number three, resurrection realize. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, 
you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, how do you encourage a group of Christians who are described in verse 1 as elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, you speak of resurrection power. Look how Peter begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to or because of His great mercy, He, God the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So God's worthy to be praised because He has caused us to be born again. And he's caused us to be born again to three things. Number one, to a living hope. Number two, through a living Savior. And number three, resulting in a lasting inheritance. Now before we unpack these three realities, we must understand that God the Father caused us to be born again. Meaning he gives life. He produces. He makes it happen. See, he's the initiator of new life for Christians, which is exactly what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Verse 6 continues, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the Father put a supernatural spotlight on hearts so that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins might be made alive by the blazing light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now don't miss this. If God never caused new life, you would never experience it. If God never initiated, you would be forever dead. No life No hope, no saving faith. Dear believer, do not get over this fact. The reason that you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, is because God intervened. God did a work. As the author tells us in verse 3, this work of salvation is according to His mercy. His mercy on your life. So those who deserve nothing but God's wrath receive mercy. Those who deserve death receive life. Now how does that sound to the people of God this morning? That is good news. So God causes Christians to be born again. And then Peter actually fleshes out the extent of this reality, saying first that God causes Christians to be born again To first, a living hope. Notice, he doesn't just cause life, but promises that the Christian has hope. A living, breathing certainty. Which is necessary for those to whom Peter's writing. Why? Because the Christians, at this time, were being persecuted by the Roman government. They were elect exiles, dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So what greater comfort than to know for certain that even during trials and impending death, you have a living hope, a living certainty. And that certainty is rooted in this life 
but it ultimately points forward to a heavenly hope. They look to the future with great confidence that blessing, joy, and peace with God await them. And so the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope. But that living hope is a reality because it's a hope rooted in a living Savior. Just look with me again at verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So according to Peter, our hope is just as alive as Jesus is alive, with, which is a 100% certainty. Those who have been born again have a living future hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in a sense, because of Christ's resurrection, we're bound to experience a living, vibrant future and forever hope. Because it's based on Christ's defeat of death in the past. And so death could not hold him nor will death, defeat, hold his people. I mean, just think of what happened in John chapter 11. Remember Jesus' friend Lazarus, he ended up dying. And then four days later, after his death, Jesus goes to his tomb. And as he and a few others are standing around this tomb, Martha shares her frustration with Jesus, right? And she says, Lord, if you had been here a few days earlier, my brother wouldn't have died. And how does Jesus reply to her? Remember John eleven twenty three through 26? Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Right? So he gives Martha this assurance that one day, Lazarus, he's going to rise. Right? And he confesses that life is only found in belief in him. And then what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't just promise this future resurrection. No, Jesus calls Lazarus, exclaiming, Come out of the grave! Come out right now, Lazarus! And Lazarus can do nothing else but obey the creator of all the earth. Right? Lazarus rises at that moment from the dead by the very words flowing from Jesus' mouth. Now think through this with me for a moment. In the text, we get a promise and we get a reason. First, the promise is that those who believe in the Lord Jesus are those that will rise in on the last day. Those who believe in Christ have the promise that death is a mere promotion to life eternal. And secondly, we get a reason. The reason that those who believe in Jesus that they will rise and experience eternal life is based solely on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because this account is only tipping its hand forward to the reality that in just nine chapters, right? In John chapter 20, Jesus is raised from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. John 20 verse 8 tells us that the disciples rushed to see the tomb. And they say... Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went into the tomb and saw. And what did this disciple see? Well, nothing but cloths. There's no body there. Jesus was gone. And so at that moment, the text tells us that the disciple believed. Why? Here it comes. Because he knew that Jesus must rise from the dead. 
So Jesus promised that he'd rise on the third day, and he accomplished exactly what he proclaimed. So the beauty of Jesus' resurrection is that all who put their faith and trust in Christ alone not only have their sins forgiven, but have a living hope that although they will die, they will live eternally on the basis that Christ arose on the third day. Ed Clowney echoes this same reality. He says, the means of our new birth is not first the message of resurrection, it's the fact of the resurrection. So when Christ rose from the dead, he secured our salvation. When Christ rose, we rose. And giving life to Christ, God gave life to all those who are united to him by faith. Now let's just put the pieces together here. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, then there's no resurrection. There's no need to believe in him, and there's no ability to guarantee a lasting living hope. Because he's not a living savior. No, he's just a dead liar. But Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Therefore, Christ hasn't just made wishful hope a possibility for Christians. No, no, no. He has made living hope a guarantee. He has made living hope a guarantee for all those who are in Christ. There's a future resurrection awaiting those that are living and for his glory. So not only do Christians have a living hope by means of the resurrection, but Christ's resurrection leads to a lasting inheritance for all those who have been caused to be born again. That's exactly what we see in verse 4, right? He has caused us to be born again, not only to a living hope, but to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, this inheritance stems from the fact that there is a living hope through the resurrection, right? They're connected. So, inheritance and resurrection go hand in hand. But what's this inheritance, Well, if you were to speak to a Jew, they'd most certainly be tempted to point directly to a physical inheritance, something like we've seen with the promise to Abraham and all his offspring, right? A promise of fruitful land with milk and honey to enjoy. But that's not his intention here. No, Peter speaks of a future, physical, and forever inheritance for the people of God. So this is a pointer forward to future glory. And notice what verse 4 tells us, that this very inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. And it's unfading. So what's the point? Well, it's not a physically corrupted reality. No, this inheritance is one that's pure, without blemish, and will never, ever die. This is a living, lasting inheritance for God's people. And verse 4 continues to add to our understanding, right? This inheritance is not only living and lasting, but it's kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven. Now just take a deep breath with me. A lot of theology. So good for our soul. But what we're going to see here, this truth is mind-blowing. This inheritance that Christians get to enjoy because of God's work through resurrection is kept for you. No one can take it. No one can beg for it. No one can steal it. No one can pawn it off. No, it's kept 
for you, reserved for you, secured for you in heaven. Now, this isn't like a grandfather storing up all his money safely in a bank for his grandkids so that one day they get to reap the rewards of tons of money. No, this inheritance is something like a guard dog. God the Father is actively guarding, actively protecting and keeping our inheritance and heaven for us. He has his eyes on that very reality. It's active work. And unlike most watchdogs, the Lord never slumbers or sleeps. He's never distracted. The inheritance never fades to black. This inheritance is permanently and entirely kept secure for you. How? Because God's guarding it. God's keeping it. Brothers and sisters, like Psalm 66 that we read this morning says, come and see what God has done. Look at what he's done for the Christian. As Annie Johnson Flint once said, out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and he gives and he gives. Oh, what has he given to those who did not deserve it? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through a living Savior with a lasting inheritance. And Peter's not done. Not only that, but he actively be guards us by faith. Look at verses 4 through 5. It says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. When? In the last time. Now this verse is directly linked to the inheritance of the saints. So what Peter's doing is confirming the certainty that all those who are believers in Jesus are those who will receive the inheritance, right? That future eternal salvation for their souls. So where does this confidence in a secured inheritance come from? Well, it comes from the fact that believers are guarded. They're shielded by God's power. Now, this language seems awfully like what we just read in verse 3, being kept in heaven for you. But the phrase emphasizes something different, almost like the guarding or shielding of a country. I mean, just think with me for a moment about the Great Wall of China, right? You have over 13,000 miles of wall, (laughs) 30 feet high, 20 feet wide. A structure so massive that you can see it from outer space. I mean, talk about people who do not want people getting in. Right? Walls built with impenetrable rock. No force or fire can find its way beyond the walls. I mean, that is real protection. But now think about the great wall that is God's protection. God's protecting power. The eternal indestructible, all-wise, omnipotent, omnipresent, self-sufficient, incomprehensible creator and king, that is the one who guards his people. He guards his people. And notice, the text tells us that he guards us, how? Through faith. So just catch with me the dual reality we see here. The Father is powerfully shielding, guarding, protecting His people. 
And his people are actively exercising faith in the Lord Jesus. So just catch this with me. We're not all a bunch of robots. No, that's a false understanding of our text and also of the faith. God sovereignly causes our salvation. He's keeping and he's shielding us. And those he's caused to believe genuinely walk by persistent grace-filled faith in him. So what are we being guarded by faith for? What's the purpose of this guarding? According to our text, it's for a great salvation, a great deliverance that will be revealed. A deliverance from sin, death, and the devil that will be fully and forever ours. When? Just look at verse 5. When's it going to happen? In the last time. He keeps it until the end of the age. When Christ returns in all his splendor and glory. Now just grab a hold of what Peter has just said in these first five verses. God the Father is worthy of all worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he caused you to be born again. He caused you to be born again to a living hope with a living Savior resulting in a lasting inheritance. And he himself is guarding you through faith. What purpose? So that you make it all the way to the end. That you make it all the way home. When you bring the due honor, praise, and glory to the king of all kings. So where there is, number one, resurrection power, there must be, number two, resurrection joy. But what is the reason for joy? Well, just take a look at verse 6 with me. In this you rejoice. What a wonderful little phrase. right? But a phrase that begs the question, in what do I rejoice? Well, it's clearly connected to all that Peter has just unpacked for us in verses 3 through 5. Right? Christians rejoice in the living hope that has been caused by God through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The inheritance that is ours, which we will experience because God is keeping us to the end. Which makes tons of sense, doesn't it? Because sinners deserve hell. They don't deserve life. And yet it's promised that because of what God accomplished in and through Christ, namely the resurrection from the dead, all true believers have such hope that not only do they escape the wrath of God, but they have a a hope that never dies. You've got a living hope and an inheritance that never fades. It's a lasting inheritance. It's a salvation just waiting to be revealed at the perfect time. And so because of that reality, you should be rejoicing. Now, how about you? How about you? Are you brimming with joy in what Jesus has done in your place and through his resurrection this morning? As I have said, the resurrection of Christ fuels our joy in him. Why? Because his overcoming of death by death solidifies the hope that you will never taste death for all of eternity. And so these truths should absolutely shake us to our core this morning. And if it doesn't, then we clearly do not understand the immensity of what Christ has done in rising from the dead. 
You see, Christian joy is driven by the reality of Christ's resurrection, which then enables us, it frees us to look forward to our future hope in him. And so with all of this in mind, as the doctor so wonderfully and helpfully alluded to, Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the entire face of the earth. We should be welling up with joy because there's great joy to be had. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection with a lasting inheritance before God forever. And we understand the need to rejoice, don't we? And we're even happy to do so on good days. But how about when you're being persecuted? How about when trials come? Are you joyful in Christ then? Now Peter not only gives us the reason for joy, but he then unpacks the context of joy. I mean, just look at verses 6 and 7 with me. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the revealing, the returning of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's clear that joy is experienced in the context of suffering, which is what we see in verse 6b. Even for a little while, right, in comparison to all of eternity, so a little while, meaning trials, (laughs) a little while for your entire earthly life. That's an encouraging statement, isn't it? Then he continues, so trials for a little while, if necessary, which are grieving you, literally distressing, burdening you. You're burdened, distressed by various trials. So remember, Peter's audience, they've been persecuted. They were isolated, dispersed across all the land, friends and family, fearing for their lives. But that doesn't mean that there isn't instruction for us as well, right? They clearly were grieved by trials, and so are we. So when Peter speaks of various trials, he's getting after the fact that there's going to be seasons in life when we lack provision, power, position, protection, or maybe even the sense of permanence. There's going to be times when we become the recipient of verbal or physical persecution on the account of declaring the gospel. Not only that, but it also includes the pain experienced by those who have loved ones whose bodies appear to be wasting away before their eyes. Or the dark moments in life when we're asked to fend off the attacks of the evil one. And so here's a question for you all this morning. What are you experiencing right now? What's going on in your life? Is there pain? Is there relational heartache? Are there difficult days of depression, loneliness, the fear of unemployment due to your faith, a public school pressing for you to dim your faith for the sake of political agendas? Are you burdened by the weight and guilt of past sin? Are you navigating a really hard medical situation? If this is you... I'm sure it's hitting some of us, if not all of us. This is the grieving that Peter's talking about. 
Trials are a foregone conclusion for the people of God. For Christians, it's a reality. And that's just not the case for the people in Peter's day. That's the case for all of those who are professing faith in Jesus. And you know what? As difficult as grieving due to trials may be, I want us to notice the greater reminder found in our text. The weight of trials is certain. It's clear. They're grievous. But they're never without purpose. Just look with me. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now don't miss these two wonderful words to start our verse here. So that, that's a purpose. He's speaking of the purpose of our trials. So it's God's desire, his plan and purpose for the genuineness, the legitimacy of our faith to be tested. So as Peter tells us, our faith is thrown into the proverbial pressure cooker of life. The fire in order to answer the question. Is that fool's gold? Is that fool's gold? Or is that genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Right, so God uses trials to test our faith. Not to force us to stumble and fall, but to purify, to strengthen, and to confirm our faith. So that it's solid, it's stable, and it's the real thing. So to sum up. Paul's saying that God sovereignly and purposely places us in the refiner's fire to burn away any and all impurities that remain in a believer's faith. I mean, just think of the old hymn, The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Right, Which highlights... That the Christian hope and faith is grounded on Jesus' glorious resurrection and our longing joyfully, even in the midst of difficulty, for his return. When our purified faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's clear. Every single second that you and I experience trials, hardships, and suffering, they all have a purpose. Used to refine you. Test the genuineness of faith. So let's be clear. You do not suffer in vain. Even this morning, you may be suffering. You may be in the midst of a trial, and it's not in vain. No, God's using it to refine you. Your faith stable and strong. Meaning that when you go to the doctor and he gives you every reason under the sun to be terrified of what's in store for you for the next few months, you must know that God is using it to refine you. The continuous screams of a newborn child at 4.36 a.m. are being used to refine you. The death of a loved one used for your good Car accidents, doctor visits, cancer treatments, house fires, failed test grades, sickness, debt, war, 
persecution, and even traffic jams. They all have a purpose. That you might be tested. And you might be displaying the genuineness of your faith. God's using every bit of it to refine His people. To test that faith. To make sure that your faith results in sight. When one day, praise and glory and honor will be dispensed to the one who's worthy. That's the reason that you're, you're being tested so that your faith would be sight, so that he would be exalted. Now the fact that God uses all our trials for a purpose should change the way that we view our trials. Should change it. And so because God is working, we can actually shift our orientation from why is this happening to me to a prayerful examination of our hearts and our intentions. And so I think one of the most helpful things that we can do is pray. And pray that God would use these difficulties to humble us, that we would be those who entrust ourselves in the same way that Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Remember what he says. Three times I pleaded, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He doesn't want this thing. But then he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, when trials come, and they most certainly will, one of the most helpful things you can do, I can do, is pray to God. And pray that his grace would truly be sufficient for us. That we would be a people who boast not in ourselves, but in the one who orchestrates both blessings and trials as we await that great, glorious, triumphant return when our faith will be turned aside. When our tears will be wiped away. When our fears will be crushed. And when our souls most certainly will be satisfied. So those who are born again to a living hope and are being guarded through faith even amid various trials are living lives that are characterized by joy-filled faith. And we are longing for three, the realization of resurrection that's to come when we stand before Christ in all His beauty. And so I want us to read verses 8 and 9 as we look at number three, resurrection realized. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So A, veil, joy-filled faith. Right, Peter's clear that we at this very moment Catch it. At this very moment, do not see the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice in, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So Peter's saying, the joy of that day and the certainty of that future salvation can be enjoyed right now in the present time. Right now, that joy can be experienced. Now, how do we know that to be true? Well, because he moves from the past tense to the present, and then verse 9 moves us to our future reality. 
Look again at the text. For though you have not seen him, past tense, you love him. And then the present, though you do not see him now, but believe in him. And even though we haven't seen him any time in the past or in the present, these Christians are commended for what? For believing in him, for rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Which is purposefully echoing the promised living hope that's anchored to none other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So his resurrection fuels our joy. Get this, right now. His resurrection fuels our joy in him. And this joy only anticipates the future joy that we get to experience when he raises us from the dead at his return. A living hope. So all this means that we've got abundant reasons to experience joy-filled faith right now. Even if we have veiled eyes. Right? We haven't seen him but we love him. We haven't seen him, but we believe in him. So we trust that he truly has come. Therefore, he will come again. So then the difficulties we face, the things we experience, shouldn't touch the joy we experience in the Lord right now or in the future. Why? Because we have the guarantee of endless hope found in Christ through his resurrection. But here's the question I've been thinking through. It's nice to talk about joy. Grateful for it. But what does joy look like right now? What does joy look like when I can't see him? What does joy look like when I'm in the middle of the trial and I can't see anything but the trial itself? How do I fight for joy? Well, just because inexpressible joy can be found doesn't mean that it's always easy to fight for because we live in a sin-cursed world. And so we need to think about what stirs joy when life hurts and when future glory seems so distant. Once again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is extremely helpful. He says that as Christians, we must realize that most of our unhappiness Most of our lack of joy in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talk to ourselves. We listen to ourselves instead of talk to ourselves. Do you get this? The reason we typically don't find joy right here, right now, even when life hurts, is because we listen to our own murmurings. We soak in the swamp of bad thinking and the woe is me kind of grumbling. The fact is, at least for me, we can be easily puppeted by our circumstances rather than liberated by Christ's death and resurrection. So then what do we do? What must we do? We need to see him when we can't. We open up God's word. We open the word to see and hear God. We must recall to mind the glory of the gospel. We need to kindle anew in awe of what God has accomplished. The reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead, which guarantees our future resurrection. Now, some of you might be thinking that I have just a pie-in-the-sky type of mentality. 
that the fight for joy isn't a reality. But I 100% disagree. Not because I like my own thinking. No, but because Peter just told us in verse 8 that inexpressible joy isn't out of sight. It isn't veiled. No, it's available for the people of God. But when we don't gaze at the glory of Christ's resurrection, we miss the opportunity to well up with joy, to well up with desire and overwhelming happiness in God. So what do we do? We snuff out killjoys with the truths of the death killer. We need to snuff killjoys out by the truths of the death killer. I think one way to do it is open up 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Right? Do you remember chapters, verse 6? In this you rejoice. These things cause you to be filled with joy. So I'm going to look at the things that bring me joy or should bring me joy. I'm going to take 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and I'm going to write it down on an index card. Or I'm going to put it on a background of my phone so that every single time I open up this thing, I see those glorious words. Do not escape from the truth of Christ's resurrection. Because he was raised, I'm going to rise. Right? As I've said, his resurrection fuels our joy. So wake up. And when you do, read of his resurrection. Think upon what has, done, what has happened in and through Christ. When you shower, read 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Think about it. Contemplate the reality. When you drive to work, don't read it. Just listen to it. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5. And then think about it. When death is imminent, read of it and think about it. We get this all mixed up. The gospel is not merely a tool to be used for lost people to be found. No, the gospel is the anchor of our souls. The hope and joy for those who have been saved. So even now, with veiled eyes, we are called in the scriptures to live with joy-filled faith. But as we know, and as the glorious hymns of old tell us, Oh, Lord, haste the day when my face, my faith shall be sight. And we see in our text, that's the reality. It's going to be sight. It's an outworking of what he's promised. And it's all been funneled through what? Through the resurrection, the real Resurrection of Christ from the dead. We have a living hope with a living Savior. And it's resulting in a lasting inheritance forever and ever. And so look at what verse 9 declares. It declares the outcome of faith of those who are joy-filled. Right? The life of the joy-filled faith. Here it comes. Be unveiled joy-filled faith. Verse 9 says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation, the deliverance, the liberation of your souls. Look what will one day be obtained. Salvation of your souls. That's what's going to come. 
It's the promise of full and forever deliverance. Our faith will be turned aside, which is exactly what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see him face to face. For now we know in part, but then we shall know him in full. We'll be known by God and we will know him. What was once veiled will then be fully known. We will enjoy and experience a living hope through a living Savior. We will see Him. We will know Him. We will have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Why? Because the risen King, Christ Himself, will dwell among His risen people for all eternity. Oh, may we be a people who are filled with such joy, no matter what trial comes, because we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the one who lived the life that we could never live the one who died the death that we deserved and rose from the dead on the third day, that we might have life forever reconciled to you. And so, Lord, may we be a people who do not neglect so great a salvation, but that we would marvel at what you have done in Christ, that we would have the resurrection of Christ on the forefront of our minds, that we would contemplate the reality of who Christ is and what he's done, and that we would be filled with such great joy. And that joy would not only be in the present time, but it would echo and reverberate throughout all of eternity for your great name's sake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.